Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. I'm going to roll the dice here because I am, the passage that I'm going to preach today is what I would believe and what I would almost confidently say is the absolute most boring chapter in the entire Bible. And I'm pulling it out on a holiday. Oh man, this is going to be so good. Glad they brought a friend. Um, I've read the whole thing, so trust me, I've read this whole Bible. I know all of the chapters that are difficult to understand and read. And Matthew chapter 1 is maybe one of the most boring chapters in all the Bible. This is the reason why most people have a New Year's resolution that they set to read the Bible more and pray more. This, Matthew chapter 1, this passage is the reason why most people fall apart on January 2nd after they've made that New Year's resolution, right? Because here's what happens. Into December, like this time of year, people say, hey, I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And so I'm going to read the Bible in a year, right? So I want to read it some more. And so where do we start? Right? And so some people say Old Testament, uh, a little harder to understand, like you need somebody to help explain it to me, so let, let's not start in the, in the Old Testament, let's start in the New Testament, right? Stories of Jesus, really cool miracles, be easier to understand, right? And so people say, all right, well, I'm going to start in the New Testament, so where am I going to start? Well, let's start in the Gospels, right? Because that's about Jesus, it's the most familiar with people probably, and so I want to I read those stories about Jesus. Jesus, the central figure of the Old and the New Testament, everything is all about Jesus, right? And so let's start there. So they say, well, where am I going to start? Why don't we just start at Matthew, right? Makes sense. It's the first book of the New Testament. And so January 1st, people get up, uh, depending on what you did for New Year's Eve, you get up early or get up later, and, uh, and, and they read their Bible for the first time, and it's like they're like fired up about it, New Year's resolution, and, and, and then they hit Matthew chapter 1, and then in January 2nd, they're like, I feel like God is leading me not, not to read as much as I thought I was going to. Maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe, maybe this is hard. Maybe I should start with a, a different chapter or a different book. In this chapter, just in the first few verses, the first 16 verses of Matthew, there are over 50 names that are listed. Most of the names are listed twice, and so you're going to read, just in these first 16 verses, you're going to read 100 names. Just like, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's like reading a phone book, and if you're under 30 in here, a phone book is a big thing with names and numbers in it, okay? So it's a phone book, you're just reading, you're going down a list of people's names, and you're you're trying, and I'm not talking about like like if you're an expectant mom in here or have ever had a kid before, you know what I'm talking about. There are these little books that you can buy that are like twenty five thousand plus baby names. And so as moms are dreaming about what they want their kids to be named, they'll buy these books, and it's that's just it. It's just a list of name, name after name after name after name. Like nobody does any any like joyful reading or engaging thought in the twenty five thousand name book. But this is the Bible's equivalent of it. The bad part about this, though, is these are not names like Bob, Sally, Jim, Robert. Like, you would only wish that there were easy names like this. These are names with, like, 14 or 15 letters in them. 
There's long names. And weird part about it is like out of the 15 letters, there's only four vowels in the whole Like I'm looking at these names and I'm like, I didn't even know you could jam that many consonants together. Like what sound does that make? Did they leave a letter off? Like I don't even, how do you say that? How do you pronounce it? And so this morning, uh, good rule of thumb, if you want to sound smart, if you will just read them really quickly, people will, it'll sound like you know what you're talking about and you're not struggling with it. So I'm just going to read these names as fast as possible. But here's what it is. Here's this list of names. Here's the phone book of the New Testament. This is actually the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to see his family tree. It's like Jesus took the little 23andMe kit and he took the little Q-tip and swabbed his mouth and mailed it in and he got the report back. He went to Ancestry.com and generation to generation he traced back and he's like, man, who is in my family tree? Like, what is going on here? Who, who came before Jesus that he was related to? And so typically, when you get a family tree like this or when you find out some of your relatives, if they're good things, then you'll brag about them, Right? Like if you found out that you were related to a movie star or an historical figure, like if you found out like somewhere along your dad's line, like you related to Thomas Jefferson, or there was a famous athlete where you're like, hey, I'm related to Michael Jordan, or there's something that, that, that you point to, like if you could brag about if they were famous or they were important or they were a historical figure, you know, we would say that. We're like, hey, you know, my name's Nathan, and I don't know if you know this, but I'm a descendant of a, like, cousin, a father, of, of brother of Thomas Jefferson. Isn't that pretty cool, man? I'm, I've kind of got a, a royal bloodline here. But Jesus, when you read his genealogy, not only do you see some really cool figures, but you see some interesting names. Names that, if you found out, that a man was going to write the very first story of Christmas, like the very first chapter of the New Testament. When you read some of these names, if I were Matthew or if I were Jesus, I would have left those names off. Like if you got a family tree and, and, and you got your, your, your reading back and it said, hey, we found some cool news, like your great-great-uncle is Charles Manson, all right? You may want to keep that under the down low. Right? That's not something that's like, hey, got something in the mail today, found out somebody I was in, related to, really close, we're very similar. No. What if you found out that your family came from Germany, they immigrated here, and then you realized a few generations before that, like Hitler was your great, 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 great granddad. That's not something you'd probably publicize. You're not rolling around bragging about being related to a guy like Hitler. But when you read some of the, the names in this tree, they, they make you scratch your head. You're like, wait, wait, wait. You, you, you wrote that? Like for, for millions of people to read, thousands of years later, you put those two names in there? Wait, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember that person. You're related to that girl? Man, while the rest of us would be quick to hide things in our past that would make us look bad or that wouldn't be beneficial to us, these were the very things that Jesus actually included in his family tree. The things that were recorded in Scripture that as every year, as hundreds of thousands of people all around the world tell the Christmas story, they say names like I'm going to say today. So there has to be some significance behind these. There has to be a reason why in the Bible, as we look at Jesus' 
grandparents and great-grandparents and, and hundreds of generations before Jesus that there would be names in here of people that we wouldn't want to associate with, people that we would not want to brag about, much less write down for millions of people to see. There has to be a reason why the Christmas story starts with verses and names like this. So I want to look at four names this morning, four names in these verses that introduce the Christmas story and try to tie it all together as to why these would even be included in the story of how Jesus was born. Here, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here's the first branch. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. If you got twins, those are two good names. Whose mother was Tamar. Something really interesting that we read here that, that pops out to us is this name, Tamar, in verse 3. This is a woman's name. Now, this would have been just bombastic in the first century. And for, for, for a woman to be listed, women were not considered worth of very much. And still in the Middle East today, they're nowhere near the same worth as men as communicated in their culture. And so there's no way that a woman's name would be included in a Middle Eastern family tree in the first century. But yet here, just in the third level, the third verse, we see a woman named Tamar. Do you know that Tamar was... In Jesus' family tree. Now, Tamar's story is actually in Genesis chapter 38. And back in the Old Testament, here's what happens. Her husband dies. And the culture of that day was that if a husband died, then a brother of the husband would take care of the widow. Like they would bring her into her home. Oftentimes in this culture, the, the younger brother would take her as a second wife, would care for her, would love her, would provide for her, would ensure that she stayed inside of the family. But here's what happened with Tamar. Her husband died, and uh, so the second brother took her in, took her as a second wife. Well, the second son died as well. And so now this father, his name is Judah, this father looks at him and be like, man, you have married two of my sons, and both of them have died. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Are you crazy? You must be cursed. And so here's the deal. You're not going to marry my third son. I'm not going to take care of you. You are not going to be in my family. And Judah, this father-in-law, actually broke the law. It was a law in that day that they had to take care of the women. Again, a woman's value was based on nothing in this culture, nothing other than her husband. Women could not get a job. Uh, women could not make money. And especially a woman that was no longer a virgin was of no use to any young man that was looking for a wife. And so a woman that had been married two times in culture, you, you were gone. You were hopeless. The only hope you had is if your family stuck by the law and loved you and kept you in and provided for you. But unfortunately, Judah made a decision. Her father-in-law said, no more. I'm not going to do what's right. I'm not going to do what the law says. I'm not going to take care of you. You're on your own. And again, because of the culture of the day, this would have left Tamar with nothing. She has no money, no future, no, no hope. Earlier this summer, 
uh, I got the opportunity to spend a few weeks in Iraq. And one of the days that we were there, we were in a, a refugee camp of Syrian refugees that were fleeing the war in Syria. These are tents that will hold 25,000 people in this campground. Tents made of ripped up tarp and old clothes just to keep the heat off of people. And we would go from tent to tent to tent, meeting people, sharing our story, telling them who Jesus is. And I remember one particular young girl approached us in her young 20s. And through a translator, she told us, I was married a month ago. And my husband came in and took me out of the refugee camp, and I was able to go and live with him and with his family. It was a totally new life. But she said, after three weeks, he got tired of me and didn't want to be married anymore. And so he put me in his car, and he drove me back to the refugee camp, and he dropped me off at the tent and said, you're no longer my wife. And she said, I got nothing. In that culture, she has no money. She has no hope of ever remarrying. You can't get a job. And sitting underneath a ripped-up tent in 110-degree weather in the middle of the Iraqi desert, I stared hopelessness in the face. And there was nothing I could say. I couldn't tell her, oh, it'll get better. I couldn't tell her, oh, no, you, Prince Charming is going to ride in one day. I couldn't say, well, you know what? It doesn't matter. You don't need a husband. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. Just work hard and get a job and save money and do the right things and trust in God and, and he'll take care of everything. You couldn't do that in that culture. And I'm reminded of the story of Tamar where she just finds herself taken advantage of and left with nothing, no hope. No future, done wrong by her father-in-law, cast aside. And all Tamar wanted was justice. I just want him to do the right thing. And this girl stood and looked at us and said, I just want justice. I just want my husband to do the right thing. What's wrong with me? Am I not good enough? Do I not look pretty enough? Am I not tall enough? Do I not have enough talents? Like, do I not come from the right family? What, what's wrong with me? Now, Tamar had, unfortunately, a pretty, pretty messed up plan to get back at her father-in-law. And she did some things that are like, not even safe for work. You don't even talk about, don't, don't look up the story of Tamar and what she did to get back at her father-in-law. Don't look that up on your work computer, you'll get fired. The story is that graphic. The story is that over the top. But Tamar is a story of justice. Who's going to stand up and do the right thing? What happens when injustices happen to us? What happens when we look around the world and it feels like everything's going crazy and bad things are happening to seemingly good people and it just doesn't seem fair? Like, God, where are you? What are you going to do? Why won't you step up? Why won't you meet the needs? Why won't you help hurting people? And the, the, the justice that she so desperately desired that would mark her life would one day be found in a man in her own family tree. Because when Jesus came to the earth, he provided justice. Because our sin separated us from God. 
And justice for us, would we lose our lives and be eternally separated. But the just Jesus shows up as a little baby in a manger. And as the story unfolds in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says, remember the girl that wanted nothing more than justice. Well, Jesus is here. And Jesus is our story of justice. Verse 3, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Finally, we got like a short name that makes sense. Unfortunately, Ram, you're named after either an animal or a Dodge truck. And so I don't know if that's better than Aminadab or not. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, Dab. The father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, the second animal name we have. Salmon, or is it Salmon, the father of Boaz, check it out, whose mother was Rahab. The second woman. We got another woman in the family tree. Totally uncharacteristic. Like, it's crazy that we only had one female name. Now we got two. Rahab was a story, a character in the Old Testament. Rahab uh, was a prostitute. Can you imagine having that in your family tree? Not only having that in your family tree, can you imagine publicizing it in your family tree? Like, what if somebody came up to Jesus? Like, if if this were my family tree, somebody comes up to me and reads my family tree, they're like, ah, Rahab, wow, a woman's name in your family tree? That's interesting. She must have been very important. She must have done something really great. Now, I'm not going to go out there and say, yeah, she was a prostitute. I have a prostitute in my family tree. No, I'm going to try to spin that. They're going to say, what, what, what did Rahab do? What makes her so important? She must have been a dignitary or invented something or been very powerful. I'm like, well, she ran her own business. She, was, uh, she worked at night, and she ran her own business. And she's kind of an entrepreneur, just owned it. Yeah, kind of a trailblazer in the uh, female category uh, to be able to be a business owner and work for yourself. And she worked at night. And I would just leave it there. But for some reason, Jesus put Rahab, like Rahab, that name, the name of a prostitute in his family tree. Like, why would anybody want to do that? Rahab's story was one of actually of great faith. In the Old Testament, God made a promise to his people and says, I'm going to give you a land, a place to call your own, your own country to live in. And that, that promise attached to the land gave it the nickname promised land, right? Not very creative, but it was the land that was promised to God's people from God. So Moses sends out this group of people, these spies out into the land, because they want to know, like, is the land good? When God gives us the land, like, how much land is it? What's on the land? Who's on the land? Who's going to kick those people out? Like, is God going to tell them that, that he gave this land to us? And so they send two spies to a city named Jericho. May have heard of it before, got really big walls, These two spies get in. Here's the problem. The government officials of Jericho find out that two spies from the nation of Israel are inside the city. They're convinced that they're going to do something or stir up some trouble, and so they send the police out to get these two spies. These two spies, these Christian men, just doing what Moses told them to do, go out. They, They got their backs against the wall. They don't know where to go. They're not familiar with the city. Police are right on top of them. All of a sudden, they meet this woman named Rahab. Rahab grabs them, pulls them into her house, and she says, hey, listen, go up on the top of my roof. You can hide there. They'll never find you. Why would you be helping them? 
Why are you risking your own life in order to, to save us? They jump up on the roof. Here, it gets even better. Check this out. The police come to Rahab's door and knock on the door. They say, hey, have you seen two guys? Like heavy set, tall guys. You seen them? They're not from around here? Rahab said, yeah, I saw them. They went that way. If you run really fast towards the gate, you may be able to catch them. She lied to the cops. Cops are at their door. She's hiding these Christian men on a roof, and she lies to the police. And once the police leave, she helps them escape the city. And, and, and right, when they, right when they leave, Rahab says, hey, I want to I tell you something. I know that your God told you that this place would be yours, and I know that your God will deliver it to you. Because I've heard of you, and I've heard of your God, and my faith is in him. And so I want you to remember me. When God gives you this city and you come back, I want you to remember Rahab, the prostitute. <laughs> a woman of great faith, willing to put her own life into her own hands to make a way for God's plan to come forth. Can you imagine those two spies going back to Moses? What did you see? Oh, man, look. We were running through the city. We got caught. Somebody called the cops on us. We rolled into this woman's house. Who was it? Rahab. What did she do? She was a prostitute. A what? Yeah, she was a prostitute. Don't get hung up on that, okay? So she snuck us onto the roof. She told us she liked us. I bet she did, right? She said we were cool. Like She said we were close. She said she was going to do us a favor. Like, yeah, that's her job. Don't, like, don't listen to her. Run away. What are you doing? No, Moses, she was different. She knows God. and She's put her faith and her hope in God, and she protected us. Can you believe that their salvation would come from a woman like Rahab? It's a story that our salvation can come from even the most unnoticeable places. That just like Rahab, the prostitute, saved the men of Israel so that God's plan could go forth. A baby in a manger would come to save us. Seems like salvation would come from somewhere different than a humble beginning like that. But the story of Rahab reminds us wouldn't you have salvation come from any other way? It, it reminds us that salvation comes from unexpected places. Can you imagine that all throughout the Old Testament they're waiting for a Savior to come? He's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, and so they're looking in, in palaces and in, in big castles for a Savior to be born in a golden bed with thousands of people around him singing and celebrating and lifting him up. That's what they're looking for. And then all of a sudden they get word from some shepherds in a field that a baby's been born in a barn under some hay with some stinky animals to an unmarried couple and a girl that claims to be a virgin but just gave birth to a son. Rahab was included in this story to be a reminder to us that our salvation comes in an unexpected place, in a manger from a teenage girl. A Savior is born. Verse 5, we see the second woman, even in this, this verse, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, name number three in Jesus' lineage in his family tree. One of the few women in all of the Bible who have an entire book written to them. There's the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Like This woman's life was so significant, so important, that an entire book of the Bible was dedicated just to her. Eventually, Ruth 
as a result of meeting a very close woman that loved God, would put her faith in God and would be a loyal friend, a servant to this woman named Naomi. All of Naomi's family died and she lost all of her money. And in a moment where Ruth could have left, where Ruth could have said, you know what, if you can't pay me, if you can't do anything for me, then I'm going to go and try to make my living somewhere else. She looked at that woman that she had served and loved so much and said, wherever you go, I'll go. I'll never leave you. I'll never turn away from you. Sound familiar? The Savior that would be born would be a God that promised to never leave and never forsake. A God that would come to this earth in the form of a servant that desperately loved and cared, that showed compassion and kindness. Ruth spent her entire life loving others. She put her own plans aside, her own dreams, her own desires, in order to put other people first. When most people's lives are marked by moments where they did things for them, Ruth's entire story was about what she did for others. Jesus' entire existence was founded on what he would do for you and me. When you see this story and you hear the story of Jesus, don't forget about Ruth, the servant, the woman filled with compassion and kindness that lived her life for everyone else, that sacrificed everything in her life to help others. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Last part, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife, you may recognize the name more as Bathsheba. Bathsheba is more than a name. It's the description of the biggest mistake that David ever did. The worst moment in his entire life. When people heard the name Bathsheba, they were reminded of what King David did. That he loved this woman that was not his wife. And he wanted her so bad that David ended up having her husband killed so that he could marry her. Bathsheba. Man, out of all the stories we could have told, he said like, King David, the guy that slayed Goliath. (laughs) King David, the little kid that was anointed king years before he actually got the crown. King David, the one that was after God's own heart. That's how God describes David. King David, the one that wrote the book of Psalms. So many things could be used, but he says, King David, the one that was connected to Bathsheba. And it would have been a reminder of his biggest mistake. It would have been a word associated with shame and guilt and pain. And in the middle of Jesus' family tree, he gives us a reminder that in our lives we experience pain and shame and guilt because of our sin. And if it weren't for Jesus, we would be known for that sin our whole lives. It would be the very thing that would keep us separated from God. But God didn't want our lives to be marked by our biggest mistakes. He wanted to save us from that and give us hope. So in the midst of a room full of people who have stories of pain and guilt and shame, a Savior is born. 
to wipe all of those away. In the genealogy of Jesus, we have a nod to a mistake of historic proportions. Something that would have been so embarrassing. Maybe you have those moments in your life. Maybe they're not publicized. Maybe everyone doesn't know them like they know the story of David and Bathsheba, but we still have them. And it'll be up to us whether or not we want to live lives carrying that shame and guilt around or are willing to look at the Savior that wiped all of those away. <laughs> I read Matthew and I was like, isn't Christmas supposed to be about like joy and singing and happiness and I, I told one of my friends I was preaching this passage, he was like, is that really the Christmas message that you think people are going to show up to hear two days before Christmas? Like, is that really what you think it should be? Why aren't we talking about the great kings of the passage? There's a lot of people, names in here, did some great things. Why do we have to pick out the people who lived unsuccessful, unclean lives? And I think I know why Jesus included those four names. Because it allows us to see ourselves in Jesus' story. Because in this story, you're not the king that was successful. You're the woman that was broken. You're not the one that had everything in your life and was completely satisfied. You were Rahab and Ruth. You're not a person that's lived a perfect life. Christmas is not about a cookie-cutter family that has an absolute perfect life. It's about people like Rahab and Tamar and people that have pasts like King David where we hear words like Bathsheba. Here's the thing. Most of us want to conceal the most disgraceful events and people in our past. We'd rather push that away in hopes that no one will ever know it and no one will ever find it, but not Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way to draw attention to these women, to their checkered past, and the things associated with their life. Why? I think it's to remind us. To remind us that even before Jesus came, there was a reason why he had to come. There was a hopeless world before hope was born. There was brokenness before there was wholeness. There was darkness long before there was life. Even in the genealogy, God weaves a story of grace. Even in the names listed, He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to give people a second chance. He loves to produce something beautiful out of something that we have royally messed up. He loves to make foreigners and people on the outside his children. He loves to reconcile enemies. He loves to take all things and work them together for the good of those that would love and pursue him. For you and I, the names of four women in a seemingly boring chapter of the Bible could be the greatest news that you hear all Christmas. Because hope came for people like that. And hope comes for people like you and for people like me.